You know, I, uh, I just was thinking as they were singing about uh, September 11th. We woke up that morning. I remember clearly waking up that day thinking about the routineness of everything that I had going. And yet, within moments, it was all changed. That's a sad thing. But think about the rapture. There'll be some day that I guess if the Lord, the Lord, someplace in the world, it'll be morning when he comes. Now, there'll be people who wake up in the morning and think it's like any other day when suddenly everything will change. And we're looking forward to that day. Who knows, perhaps it may even be today. I'm preaching a series called Spirit-Filled Family Living. And I told the 930 service that the truth of the matter is I really haven't gotten into the series yet. I'm just laying down preliminary groundwork and a, a, a quick look at the calendar says that next week is August. So what do you think? you think there's any possibility the summer series may become the fall series? I think there's a pretty good chance of that. And in fact, I'm not even sure I'm going to get through by Christmas. But uh, this is just so important for us. When Greg Buchanan was here last week, uh, when, when I came out at the beginning of the early service, he made a beeline for me. And instead of the usual salutation, the first thing out of his mouth was, tell me about your series. And so I gave him the premise of the series and told him what we were looking at. And he had two comments generally. Number one, he said, I don't hear this very much. He said, I travel all up and down the country. He said, I rarely hear this in any church. And the second thing he was very excited about because he said, you know, and for those of you who heard Greg's testimony about God's work of grace in his life and his wife's life, uh, he said, this is what my wife and I have lived. He was so excited about it that he talked to me about it all day long. And if you were here last Sunday night, you know, Pastor Price was trying to keep things going because Greg wasn't in here and I wasn't in here. Greg was in my office preaching to me because he was so excited about this series. And there, there, I really do believe there are some life-changing truths in what we're studying. And some of you will walk away from this perhaps at the end of the day and say, well, I don't, I don't know why pastor's spending so much time here. And that will either be because, A, you, you never will get it. Uh, you'll just buy into the world's message and you won't. You, the, the message that we're lo- looking at will just never resonate with you. Or it may be that you have it down so well that uh, you don't need it. Now, I say that tongue-in-cheek because I think the likelihood of that is rather slim. But I do want us to be very serious about contemplating what the Spirit of God would have us learn here because it is so different from what we've been taught through the years. I've been pastor here for many, many years at Messiah, and I remember uh, preaching home and family series going all the way back, I think, to 1987. And I preached a number of them. And I must be honest, uh, what I've done primarily through the years, I've always been... um, I've always been a very avid reader. I would buy a lot of books on home and family, and I would see what the gurus and good men and women were writing about the home. And I've been helped by some of those books. But I would read all these books, and they would, they would find their way into these series on home and family living. But after, after years of preaching and counseling, uh, a question began to crystallize in my mind. And I've, I've, uh, I've read the books about you know, 12 ways to manage conflict in your relationship. You have this long list and, and 10, 10 assets to communication in the home. And I always wondered, what, what, what does a couple do? You know, what does a, when a man just at that point of entering into an con- escalating conflict with his wife, how does he remember those 12 things about managing conflict? I mean, does he run and get his legal pad and go through and scroll through the list? I don't, think, I don't think most of us do that. I mean, we read the books, amen, but... Who remembers the lists? And it isn't just in the Christian community. It's pretty well throughout the culture at large because we go to all these seminars. And, you know, those of you who are in, in the business world or, or in some aspect of, of, uh, of uh, endeavor that requires ongoing training, you get these lists full of stuff and you fill out these, 
these seminar uh, studies. Who remembers that stuff? Amen. Maybe, I, maybe you do. I don't. I've just never been one to say, okay, am I, I'm on number six now, moving into number seven. I'm a person who believes in principles. If you can understand the principles of what were, get them ingrained into your spirit, operate according to those principles, expect outcomes, I'm convinced at that point you can be successful. But it's especially true when you move that into the spiritual realm and you begin to, you begin to live your life in accordance with the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Because beyond just doing the right things and expecting right outcomes, whenever you are obedient to the Holy Spirit and whatever He is telling you, God moves into your equation. And suddenly there is a power going on in your life, in your marriage, with your children, with your parents. There is a power at work that is greater than you. Talk about the sum being greater than the parts. When you, when you begin to obey God and follow the Holy Spirit and do God's will and think God's way and speak God's way and live God's way, it isn't just a matter of you doing the right things and having the right outcome. It's a matter of bringing God into your situation. And at that moment, things begin to happen that nobody can explain. Isn't, by the way, isn't that what church is all about? I mean, where's the supernatural today? I want to see the supernatural. Now, I don't want to see corny stuff, and I don't want to see foolish stuff, and I don't want to see some of the junk that goes, uh, goes on in the name of the Holy Spirit. What I want to see is real-life transformation. That's what I'm after. And that's what we need in our home today. Well, I, th- that's my introduction. I, I, I'm just saying that to explain to you why I may be preaching on this the week of Christmas, um, if, if we get to that point. In your Bibles, let's go to our text that's been our our premise for the entire series. Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Remember, what's going on in your life right now, what's going on in your marriage, what's going on in your family is a harvest of the seed that has already been sown. The seed you've sown, the seed that others have sown. What's going on is a harvest. It's a harvest. And you're sowing seeds today that will result in a future harvest. Here's the premise. Here's the principle. When you sow to the Spirit, you reap life. When you sow to the flesh, that's the carnal nature, you reap death. Simple as that. If you have a death of a marriage, somebody sowed to the flesh. If you have a life, if you have, if you have a living, vibrant relationship in your marriage, somebody sowed seeds of life. It isn't just dialing right and getting Mr. Right or Miss Perfect. It isn't just setting the dials of life just right. God knows we need to be wise in our selection of mates and follow the Holy Spirit. But it's a matter of sowing seed that lead to a good harvest. Well, I'm also a big believer not only in Bible principles, but in biblical precedent. Because as soon as I discover a principle in the Bible, I begin to look for precedence. I want to look at the lives of Bible characters who bore out the principle. And that's one reason why if you're, if you, those of you who've been at Messiah for many years, I don't need to say this, but for those of you who might be new, I don't, there are a lot of subjects in Christian, in Christian living that I don't even get into because it's speculative. I try to stay right with the word of God. 
And I am convinced that whenever you find biblical principles, you will find biblical precedents. Somebody in the Bible will live out, if not many or everyone, will live out the principle that you've discovered. So we were looking at biblical precedent last week. We were studying, actually for the last three weeks, we've been studying sowing to the Spirit. And we've looked at the life of a man named Joseph who consistently sowed to the Spirit. And we saw in the last sermon the great harvest that he experienced. Well, today, we're going to turn that upside down and we're going to look at sowing to the flesh. Now, who would be an example in the Bible of sowing to the flesh, especially in relationship to his or her family? Unfortunately, there are a lot of choices. A man like Jacob comes to mind. There is a a believer, but a man who sowed to the flesh, and look what happened to his family. He is not named in the Bible, but the prodigal son, I think, would be an example of one who sowed to his flesh. King Saul in the Old Testament consistently sowed to the flesh. But now, I'm going to throw you a curve. Because the person I've chosen today, I think, probably will surprise you. And let me preface my choice by saying this. When we looked at sowing to the Spirit, we, we chose a man who had a lifelong pattern of sowing to the Spirit. So now we're talking about sowing to the flesh. You might assume that I would tell you about a man who would be the antitype of Joseph, someone who consistently sowed to the flesh. But I'm not going to do that today. Uh, The guy I chose, I chose for a specific reason, and a reason that should cause us all to sit up and pay attention. He was a man who, and this is not a faux pas on my part, he was a man who usually sowed to the Spirit. But in an unguarded moment, he sowed to his flesh, and listen, the harvest that he reaped was devastating. Time out. I want to take a moment to talk about motives. You know, when a crime is committed, the team of investigators move in. One of the first things they want to know is who had a motivation for committing this crime, because motives explain actions. Let me ask you, you've been listening to me preach now for weeks, many of you, about sowing to the spirit. What motivates a Christian to sow to the spirit? Example. Here is a Christian woman in our church who is married to an unsaved man. He makes her life miserable. He grouses about everything. He makes accusations against her. So here is this godly Christian woman who is listening to this series about sowing to the Spirit. And she's in this this awful mess that's going on at home. And here at this moment, her husband has been excessively unkind with what he's saying. What is going to motivate her to speak in love? And to obey the Spirit of God. What would motivate her to do that? Now, here's the thing. The only thing that can motivate her at that moment is faith. I am convinced that the very element, the very motivation that will lead you to sow to the Spirit is faith. You know, I don't think I have mentioned that word yet in this series. And yet, this series, that's what this whole series is about. Faith. Faith. Think about this. Sowing to the Spirit is believing God, even though our flesh is crying out for us to do the very opposite, believing God and thinking how God wants us to think, speaking how God wants us to think, acting and behaving the way God wants us to behave, even though the situation doesn't call for that and our flesh is crying out to do otherwise. Why do we go ahead and sow to the Spirit and expect the outcome of God working? We do that because of faith. Now let's turn that around. If faith is what motivates us to sow to the Spirit... 
What is it that motivates us not to sow to the flesh? I am convinced that what motivates us not to sow to the flesh is a healthy, good, and appropriate fear. Somebody would say, Pastor, I don't know about that. I don't think Christians should ever be motivated by fear. Well, hang with me for a moment. Just think about something. What happens when you sow to the Spirit? As a child of God, when you are obedient to to God, believing God, listening to the Holy Spirit, doing what He says do, thinking like He says think, and speaking like He says speak. What happens when you sow to the Spirit? What's the outcome that would lead you to do that? The outcome is you put your future into the hands of of a loving, sovereign God who can do the impossible. Amen? I mean, if, you, if that doesn't work, then why sow to the Spirit? I can't think of any reason. But when you sow to the Spirit, you put your future in the hands of God. When you choose to sow to the flesh, you invest your future in the predispositions, the natural outcomes of your fallen, depraved nature, a cursed world system, a defeated devil, and the judgments of God on all the above. I mean, do we see that today? When I sow to my flesh, I have just put my future, just to say it again in capsule, I have put my future in the hands of my flesh, a fallen world, a defeated devil, and the judgments of God on all those. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty scary to me. That's why I'm saying what motivates us as Christians not to sow to the flesh is a good, healthy fear. That's what this sermon is about. His name is David. And for 99% of his life, he has sowed to the Spirit. But, and you might not think of him as somebody who sowed the flesh. In fact, for just a few moments, I want you to consider with me David's history. David's history. Number one, David was a saved man. We're not talking about a lost guy here. We're talking about a guy who is in heaven right now as we speak. He was saved. You say, Pastor, how do you know he was saved? Well, I know he was saved for many reasons. But if for nothing else, I know because of Hebrews chapter 11. He is mentioned in that list of the faithful. In that hall of fame of faith, David is listed. Number two, he was a man after God's heart. In Acts chapter 13, verse 22, the Bible says, After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David Son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, he will do everything I want him to do. David, listen, David was a man after God's heart. You say, Pastor, what's the significance of that? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you are in management? How many of you hire? Isn't there a world of difference between someone who just does what is necessary to get by Somebody who works when the supervisor is watching. And isn't there a great difference between somebody like that and someone who has it in their heart to do a good job? Someone who believes in the company, is willing to follow leadership. Somebody who likes what he is doing. It's in his heart, it's in her heart to do a good job. That's what God said about David. There is a man after my own heart. He thinks like I think. He he loves what I love. He hates what I hate. He was a man after God's heart. Number three, he was a man who had won many battles with his flesh. I think about all the battles he had to win to fight Goliath, the fear factor. 
He was disdained by others. He, his brothers made false accusations about, they said the only reason he was down there was to see the fight. Now I'll tell you, you have to win a lot of battles with your flesh as a young teenage kid to walk down in that valley, face a guy nine foot tall with five rocks in a bag and a slingshot. You have to win some battles with your flesh, and David had. He won battles with his flesh concerning King Saul, who turned against him. David had opportunity to kill him, to protect himself, but he didn't. And beyond this, he had experienced harvests of blessings. We've been talking about sowing to the Spirit and reaping harvests. David had sown to the Spirit by this time, and he had already reaped multiple harvests of blessing. You say, Pastor, why are you talking about David today? It sounds like David belongs in last week's sermon because he sowed to the Spirit and he reaped harvest. Wait a minute. I know pretty well who I'm preaching to. You're a wonderful church. In fact, I've had the privilege of preaching all over America. And I I don't say this to flatter you, but I really believe the most mature people I know in the world are in this church. I also know that it's very scary, and I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching to me too. It's very scary to come to the place where you say, okay, I got it now. I got it now. I got it. I got it. I'm okay now. I've won these battles with the flesh, and I'm, praise God, I'm on the upside of this thing, and, and I'm good to go now. That's a very scary place to be. Because when you think you've got it all together, and even when you have had some spiritual success in your life, Never forget that your feet are still made out of clay. You still have a fleshly sin nature and you have a devil who's painted a target on you. May you and I never forget that. Accordingly, for a few moments, I want us to look at David's prelude to disaster. David's prelude to disaster. Now, we've been talking about a great man up to this point. But something happened in his life. I don't know when it was. The Bible doesn't tell us. I don't even know exactly what it was. And I don't even think it happened in a day. It was a gradual sort of thing. There was a cooling off in David's life. I wonder, just let's, let's be real open with each other today. Is there somebody here who once was more on fire for God than you are today? Is there somebody here who used to be more passionate about serving God than you are today? Can you remember a time when you were red hot for serving God? A time when you were red hot for your church? A time when you were red hot for your ministry? You still love the Lord. You still love to come to church. But quite honestly, the passion has cooled in your life. You used to be, be, uh, Jesus was so wonderful. You had to talk to, uh, talk talk to people about him all the time. Your church was so wonderful. You were in love with it. Your friends who are godly friends, you, you were so excited about them. But now things have calmed down. If there's anybody like that here today, you need to pay attention to this next part with everything you have in your spirit. When you read in 2 Samuel chapter 11 about the sin, the adultery David committed, it sounds like he was on top of his roof, saw a lady taking a bath and committed adultery with her. Whoosh, he fell into sin. But I don't think it happened like that at all. The Bible starts out, 2 Samuel chapter 11, with some telltale signs That whatever happened in David's life did not happen suddenly. There was a prelude to David's disaster. I want you to notice with me first, his passion cooled for God's will in his life. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, 
David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. Look at this. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, God's will for David's life was to be a warrior king. And it was the time of year when kings would lead their forces into battle. What's going on here? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if David's top military brass said, Sir, we can handle this. There's no reason for you to go out. Or maybe David said, Fellas, I'm just tired. I think I want to stay home this year. But in any event, a man who had once been passionate about God's will for his life is just hanging around the palace. He had cooled off. And church, I want to say today, especially I want to talk to to members of this, this church family. I want to say something today that I mean with all my spirit. And I hope that you won't take, the, take this wrong. But nobody is responsible for keeping you on fire for God. If there's, if there's someone here, you used to be on fire for God, but you're not today. Chances are you have an excuse for it because that's just the way we are. Well, I used to be on fire for God, but this happened in my life and I didn't expect it. And this injustice happened in my life or someone did this to me. I mean, we all have our excuses for why we used to be on fire for God, but they're all junk and God doesn't believe any of them. I don't even think we believe them. Amen. We nod like we do, but we don't. We know better. And I'm human enough to have some rationale for for some slippage in my life. If I'm not as strong as I used to be for God, it's easy to point to this or point to that. But the truth of the matter is, nobody is responsible for keeping me on fire for God except Mark Hoover. No one should have to fan my flame. And you may say, well, pastor, I used to be on fire for God, but this happened or that happened. Listen, if you're not on fire for God, it's because you're out of the word of God and you're not following the Holy Spirit. You're certainly not filled with the Holy Spirit. You are responsible for keeping yourself on fire for God. And if you'll allow me to be so bold, it's time that some of us got off our spiritual backs and rose up and took responsibility for where we are with God and say, okay, God, it's not the deacon or, the, or it's the teacher, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer and come back to God. David, David's passion cooled. I think about what Paul wrote Timothy. He, didn't, he said, Timothy, stir up the gift of God that is in you. Paul didn't say... Timothy, I'm writing you to stir up your gift. He said, you go home and stir up your gift. God has given you a gift, you stir it up. Then number two, not only did David cool in his passion for God's will in his life, number two, David lost his focus. Let me be very transparent with you this morning. You say, Pastor, what is it that you fear more than anything else? I'll tell you real quickly. I fear losing my focus. I've seen that happen to pastors. I've seen good men lose their way. I very desperately fear losing my way. David lost his focus. He did not have his attention directed to what he needed to have it directed toward. And Satan supplemented that. He supplemented something in its place. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look on. David is not looking at what he's supposed to be looking at. So he wound up thinking about, he he wasn't focused on what he was supposed to be focused on. Suddenly he found himself focused on what he was not supposed to be focused on. That will always happen in the life of a believer if we're not focused. And so in this prelude, David set himself up for disaster. He hasn't committed adultery yet. 
He hasn't committed murder yet. He has not lost his family yet. But he set himself up. He has cooled off for God. He has lost his passion. And friend, could I plead with you this morning? If you have cooled off for God, you may not have fallen completely away from God, but you are setting yourself up for a disaster. Now, for a few moments, let's look at David in the flesh. Here's what happens when a believer sows to his flesh. We're going to look at a list of things that happen in David's life. All these may not translate to your situation But we're just going to see what happened. I think most of these will. Here's number one. He looks. He looks. It's wonderful to have sight, but our eyes are dangerous things. In the book of 1 John, the Holy Spirit had John write about what's in the world. The lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust of the eyes. It is human nature to want what we see. Now, you have to keep that in check. Because there, there is an appropriate sense of wanting what we see as long as it's God's will for our lives. But when we begin to focus on things that are not God's will for our lives and we want them, our eyes see them, we're in a lot of trouble. Just like Eve saw the fruit, just like Achan saw the Babylonian garment back in the days of the children of Israel. Listen, we need to be very careful about what we let our eyes rest on. I love what Job said in Job 31.1. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. How about that, men? Job said, I made a covenant, I made a deal with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. And I just can't help but take a moment here to talk to men because we, especially in this area of sexual purity, we are more prone to fall here than women. And may God help us. You know, here's the thing. In our wicked culture, there are just some images that you cannot help seeing for the first glance. But you can help the second look. You may not be able to help what you see the first time, but you can keep yourself from that second look. And I'll say something else as well. Today, we have to be very guarded about our selection of of television programs. I mean, there was a time when pornography was a backstreet business. Pornography today is commonplace in the average television set, in the average home, with cable television especially. I mean, for one thing, as far as I'm concerned, most of primetime television is just about that close to pornography. And then beyond that, the stuff that comes through cable television is just plain and simple pornography. And now the Internet. And there are many Christian men who have yielded up their lives to a harvest because they put, their, they put their future in the hands of their flesh. The battle must be won here. But David lost it. He looked. Then number two, let's follow this, this progression here. He accommodated his lust. Now, if you look at something you shouldn't look at, and I'm not just talking about in the sexual arena, but if you look at something you shouldn't look at, consider something that you shouldn't consider... The next step is to accommodate that. And here's the, here's, we should be looking at this from the reverse because if, if, let me just say something. If, if in any of your lives you begin to look at something, focus on something you shouldn't be focused on, then stop yourself from accommodating that. But David added fuel to the fire. He accommodated his lust. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So here we go. He's already looked, but now he sends somebody down to her house. He is facilitating his lust. 
Then number three, he made the decision to sin. There's always that moment when you get to the point of decision. I am convinced that he was already on a slippery slope. By looking, by facilitating, I think he was already sliding. He made the decision to sin. 2 Samuel 11 verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her. What does he do? He commits adultery with the young war bride. Where's her husband? He's away at battle, doing what he should be doing while David's at home. David should have been at the battle. So what happens next? Well, the woman comes back to David and says, I'm going to have a baby. Clearly a result of the adulterous relationship that they'd had. At this moment, David goes into a cover-up mode. He wants to cover up what he has done. Why? Because his reputation is at stake. He's king. He's supposed to be a godly man. He's the writer of Psalms. He's the one that's been leading, leading the Psalms and praise among the people. He's got a reputation to protect. And so he, um, in, an, in an attempt to cover up what had been done, he sends a message to the battle and says, send your eye home for some R&R. And his thought was that if Uriah came home and spent some time with his wife, that the normal supposition would have been that the baby belonged to Uriah. But the word of God tells us that he who tries to cover up his sin will not prosper. Listen, this thing came out not as an accident. It came out because God wanted it to come out. And David said, I'm going to cover it up. But he couldn't. Because when Uriah came home, he embarrassed David. Uriah said, how can I be home enjoying the comforts of home while my comrades are out there in the field? And Uriah would not go into his house, but he slept on the steps. So what do we have so far? David looked. David accommodated his lust. He made the decision to sin. He tried to cover it up. Now, here's the thing. When a Christian or anyone gets to this point in sin, something is almost always going to happen. It's what happened next in David's life. He sacrificed innocent people for self-preservation. At this point, David knew the jig was up, and so he fired off a message to his top general. I cannot imagine a man like David sinking to this level, but hear me well. Our flesh, and, and, and you may walk away and not believe this, but our flesh is so wicked that there is probably no sin that you could not commit given the right circumstances and the right situation. Jesus said it's not what comes into a man that defiles a man. He said it's what comes out of the heart. That's what defiles a man. See, the defilement's already there in our flesh. I can't believe David would sink to this level. But he said to his general, put Uriah in the front of the battle and then withdraw from him. Well, let's be honest about something. That was murder. That was murder. It looked, it may have looked, it may have looked all right. It may have seemed like a military tactic, but that was murder. That noble man who would not even go into his house as an act of honor when his comrades were in the field is set up to be murdered by a man who wrote most of the Psalms. Can we, can we see what I'm talking about, about sowing to the flesh yet? I mean, here is a good man. Here is a godly man, a man we love, a man we'll see in heaven. But when he starts to sow to his flesh, he has a momentum that he cannot stop. 
And in order to preserve his own skin, he sacrificed innocent people. But I have to tell you, after years of pastoring, I've seen husbands who sacrifice their wives. I've seen husbands who sacrifice their children, not, not physical death, but just sacrifice their spirits, sacrifice their future in order to preserve their own skin. Let me give you this next. In David's mind, he concocted two systems of justice. One standard for himself and one standard for everybody else. Now, I just really believe this is true. Do you know why so many people in the Christian community have two standards of justice? It's because they're sowing to the flesh. And they can't afford to have God's standard of justice in their lives because their lives are in such trouble. If they had God's standard of justice for what they're doing, they could not live with themselves. Because see, unlike a lost person, a Christian knows right from wrong. So when you meet a Christian who has two systems of justice, you meet somebody who is sowing to his flesh. And David did. At a later point, David's pastor will come to see him. Nathan the prophet. And Nathan will say, David, I want to tell you a story. Because see, at this point, David is just cool with everything. I mean, we'll talk about this in a moment. I mean, David had married Bathsheba at this time. He brought her into the palace. We'll read the verse in a minute. I mean, it looked just very much like the king had married this young war widow and, and had adopted her son that was about to be born. Everything looked really cool. And David said, I, I'm, I'm fine. I'm in good shape. But his preacher came by to see him. And he said, David, I want to tell you a story. This happened in your kingdom. So two men lived across the street from each other. Both of them had sheep. But he said the one guy had flocks and flocks and flocks of sheep. He, he had sheep everywhere. And the guy across the street, all he had was one little ewe lamb. And this lamb was like a member of the family. He said this lamb was a pet. They even fed the lamb from their cup. David said one day the guy with all the sheep, the flocks of sheep, had a visitor come to his house. And he wanted to make dinner for him. But instead of taking one of the sheep from his own flock, he went across the street and took the only little pet lamb that the people across the street had, took that lamb away, killed that lamb, and fixed it for dinner. Now, at this point, David's blood pressure is about 200 over 120. And he said, the rascal who did this, I mean, David was irrational in his judgment. He said he will die. And then he said after that, he'll pay fourfold. Now, how he'd pay fourfold after he died, I don't know. But David was so irrational. He said, the guy who did this, he's going to die. And then he's going to pay fourfold for it. Most of you know your Bible well enough to know what happened next. Nathan pointed his finger in David's face and said, David, you're the man. You're the man. Do you see what I mean by two systems of justice? When David heard the story, he was quick to pounce on what this man had done, only taking a lamb. He was going to kill a guy for taking a lamb while David had taken another man's wife and had her husband killed. And yet David thought, everything is cool with me. Two systems of justice. But that is what you have to do when you start sowing to your flesh. Because if you're a child of God, how can you live with yourself continuing to sow to the flesh? You have to concoct this other system of justice whereby you can get by with it and you have a rationale for what you're doing. And then beyond that, and I've already referenced this, 
He lost his sense of reality with God. Before this time, David knew who God was. He knew what God expected. He knew where he was and what kind of relationship he was in with God. But now he lost his sense of reality with God. I don't think I've ever seen a Christian get off and backslide and get a, start sowing to the flesh. I don't think I've ever seen a Christian do this who didn't have a little bit of what David has in him now. Because, you see, when you get away from God, you think, well, I'm going to get by with it, or I've got a reason for doing what I'm doing. And that's where David was. He had thought he'd gotten by. I, I gave you this text a moment ago, just briefly. 2 Samuel 11, verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. All very up and up, isn't it? David brought her into the house. He married her. He was going to adopt the baby that was going to be born. But look at the last line of 2 Samuel 11. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. What he didn't know was that the Lord was incensed. God was mad. God was angry at, at, at his beloved uh, child, David. Well, I want to close this morning. I know our time is gone today, but I want to close today by talking to you about David's bad harvest. Somebody could think, well, since David was a man after God's own heart, David, God's going to let David get by. No, not at all. What was David's bad harvest? By the way, let me tell you this. He suffered a harvest the rest of his life. Number one, he lost his reputation and he embarrassed the Lord. He lost his reputation and embarrassed the Lord. You know, I have to tell you, I was very angry when the terrorists flew their aircraft into our buildings in New York City. That made me very angry. But let me tell you what made me equally as angry. When they began to show the streets of Middle Eastern countries, and I saw people dancing for joy at what happened. I want to tell you, I was just as angry at those people as I was the people who flew their buildings in our aircraft. I believe, I really appreciate what the president said. I'm, a, I'm, I'm still with what he did say. I think if you're, if you're not with us, you're with the terrorists. I, I, it, it is painful it is painful for the enemy to be rejoicing over a defeat. And that's what the Bible says in 2 Samuel 12, verse 14. Nathan said, however, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Oh, child of God, could we understand that the world is watching us? They will either be drawn to Christ or repelled from him because of our lives. And Nathan said, David, what you've done. David had tried to protect his reputation but it got out. It always does. He said, the thing that you've done is caused great reproach to come on the name of the Lord. Number two, and I don't have time to preach all these things. I want to encourage you to go home and read Second Samuel chapters 11 through 16 or so. Read these chapters. He lost the child that was conceived in the adultery. That was a great source of pain to David. That baby died. And then he paid a, pri a frightful price in his family. I don't have time to tell you the story in detail, but one of his sons, Amnon, sexually assaulted his half-sister. Think about that. One of David's sons sexually assaulted one of David's daughters. It's, it's a horrible story. But think about this. David saw what he wanted, and he just took it. 
What did his son do? He saw what he wanted and he just took it. Where'd you learn that, Amnon? Learned it from dad. Learned it from my Bible spouting, Bible quoting, praise singing dad. You see what you want, you just take it. Now, I've been preaching one thing over and over. I've been preaching that if you sow to the flesh, it will be from the flesh that you will receive death. It's not God bringing down judgment. It's from your flesh. David sowed to his flesh. And now from his flesh, he's going to receive death. One of his own sons sexually assaults one of his own daughters. And then when her full brother, Absalom, found out about it, he schemed and murdered his brother Amnon. So after one of David's sons sexually assaults one of his daughters, now one of David's sons murders another of David's sons. And then that son Absalom revolted and tried to steal the kingdom away from his dad. David had to run from Jerusalem to protect his own life from his own flesh and blood, his own son. And at the end... David's general will blow a dart through the liver of David's son. Church, there's a really big harvest for sowing to the flesh. Even sowing to the flesh one time. See, you say, Pastor, I don't know about a preacher who would bring me in to a service and then try to motivate me through fear. I think it's a legitimate fear to be afraid of your own flesh. Because even sowing to it one time can bring disaster. I hear somebody say, well, pastor, what about me? I have sown to my flesh. Well, I'm thankful to tell you that you can be forgiven. You can come to God and he will forgive you. But I got to tell you this, and I don't, want to, I don't want to leave anyone under a misinterpretation today, but I must be honest about something. In the last 50 years or so, especially in the United States, we have had such a easy view of sin that the average Christian thinks because 1 John 1, 9 is in the Bible, we can do anything we want to and God will forgive us. 1 John 1, 9 is in the Bible. There's no doubt about it. I truly believe if you're God's child, He will forgive you of any sin you've ever committed. But beloved, just because God forgives you, it doesn't mean the harvest will be stopped. When I was a kid growing up in church, I used to hear a story preachers would tell about a kid who grew up, a bratty kid, a rascal kid, as he grew into a teenager, a very mean kid. He he disobeyed his dad. He disrespected his dad. There was a time when he even spat in his dad's face. And his dad, to deal, the dad, in order to deal with his frustration and his anger, every time his son would do something like that, he would go out to the tree in the front yard and take a long nail and drive it into the tree to deal with his anger over what his son was doing wrong. God is so good. This young man in a service like today saw himself for the first time and he repented and he invited Christ into his heart. And it was just a natural step to go back home and say to his dad, Dad, I'm so sorry For all the rotten things I've done, I'm so sorry for all the things I have said. Would you please forgive me? And the dad threw his arms around his son like 
in the story of the prodigal son and said, Son, I forgive you of all the things you've ever done. And then he did something. He went out to the garage and he took a hammer, the same hammer that he'd used to drive all those nails, and took the claw part of the hammer and pulled every single nail out of the tree. And when he got through, he said to his son, Look, son, all the nails are gone. The boy looked at the tree and he said, Yes, Dad, but the holes are still there. That's the message that's missing in American Christianity today. It's true, God will forgive you. But if you sow to the flesh, you can't stop the harvest. May God help us. I preach today not to cause you to be, not to cause you to feel a sense of judgment, but I do preach to bring conviction today. If you're here today and you used to be closer to God than you are today, that should be a telltale sign. Not that you've already done what David's done, but it should be a telltale sign for you that you have a prelude to disaster going on. If there was ever a time when you were serving God more than you're serving God today, if there was a time when you have more passion for God than you have today, stop it now. Because see, here's the thing. If you stop that now and you come back to, the, to God and say, God, I want to sow to the Spirit. I want to be on fire for you again. You can stop yourself from this harvest of disaster. I've had to do that many times in my life. If you're away from God today, I I know I'm preaching to people in church, but if you're away from God today, come back to Him today. So, Pastor, I'd be afraid of what people would think about me. Well, let that go. You come back to the Lord. Because, praise God, there is a power out there that has the ability to transform your life, transform your marriage, transform your relationship with your children. Don't lose that harvest. God wants to do great things in your life. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, I thank you for what we've learned today. And now I pray that you would help us, every single one of us, to take to heart what we've learned. Father, for those of us who are not as close to you as we have been in the past, help us to realize that we're we're one step closer to a harvest of death. And may we return and come back to you. And would you just fan the flames in our hearts today? May we be more on fire for you than ever before. May we be passionate about being filled with the Spirit of God. Father, there's some of us who have been in the past filled with God's Spirit, but there's a coldness now. Oh, Lord, we don't want to live like that. Change our hearts, I pray. Lord, if there's someone here today, you've led them to become part of this fellowship. I pray they'll do that with courage. Most of all, if there's somebody here today who's never yet given his or her heart to Jesus Christ, they've never been saved, would you give them the courage to get out of their seats today and come forward to receive Christ? Work with us, I pray. Oh God, Spirit of God, please be patient with us and speak to us. May we learn the easy way and not the hard way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.